Today's scripture is found in 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verses 5 through 12. If you're following along in the Red Pew Bible, it is on page 320. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or the plague of famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory You would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us, coming to drive us out of the possession you've gave us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but but our eyes are upon you. An employee at a Massachusetts store found a $20 bill on the floor of the restroom. When he picked up the $20 bill, he noticed that it had a note folded inside. The note said, help, kidnapped, call highway patrol. And then it listed two Oklahoma phone numbers. The other side of the note read, my Ford van Cream and blue, Okla. Well, the police were notified, and after they determined the names of the elderly couple registered at those phone numbers, Floyd and Rita Rupp, they put an all-points bulletin out. The media published photos and description of the missing couple. The two daughters of the couple sat anxiously by their phones, waiting for news as the interstate police searched lasted 24 hours. Well, at the place where Mr. Rupp worked, the office manager picked up the phone to hear the voice of the missing man, Mr. Rupp, on the other end. Where are you? The office manager asked. Mr. Rupp answered, I'm sitting here enjoying the view of the ocean. You have no idea what's going on, do you? Asked the office manager. No, he didn't. But when he found out, he and his wife were quite embarrassed. It turned out that his wife had been feeling insecure about the drive back to Oklahoma, which she would be making alone. She had written the kidnap note and kept it in her purse just in case she needed it. 
It had accidentally fallen out of her purse in the store restroom. When our fears are brought out into the open, what once terrified us often can seem rather silly. But what about fears rooted in real danger? Well, that's our scene here as we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We are in the midst of a sermon series on values-driven living. We began our series by looking at our mission, the mission that said that we exist to glorify God by making disciples through sharing the gospel of Christ and his unconditional love. And then the seven values that we have been since looking at one at a time support and directly tie into that mission. We don't leave that mission, they tie into it. And so we spent time a few weeks back on the value of community. Last week, we zeroed in on the, on the value of worship. This morning, the value of dependence will get our attention. The value stated this way, you should see it on the screen. We value a complete dependence on Christ as the ultimate authority of our lives. We value a complete Dependence on Christ as the ultimate authority of our lives. Now, there are several New Testament passages that speak to this value, and particularly the verse from John 15, which showed up on the front of your bulletin this morning. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And in the Greek, that word means nothing. Okay? Just in case you're wondering. Let that sink in. And to illustrate this truth, this value, I have chosen this passage in 2 Chronicles 20. Now, as an aside, there was a change in the passage I selected for this value. Most of you don't know that, or maybe you don't even care. But just listen to a little bit of this uh, journey here this past week for me. I didn't start out with 2 Chronicles chapter 20. But it was clear that this is what we need to hear this morning. And I must confess that as I worked my way through this passage this week, it was kind of a love-hate kind of thing going on in me. It had a lot to say to my own life and wrong dependency, so it was quite frankly very unpleasant at times. And yet it fostered in me a real taste for something much better. And in case, and in case I needed some confirmation that this was the right passage to focus on, God sent some my way. On Thursday morning, my my wife, who had no idea the passage of Scripture I was speaking on this week, wanted to share with me a verse that spoke to her heart and figured it was a verse that was very appropriate to me. What was that passage? 2 Chronicles 20. I get it. I get it. So you're going to get it. But see, only God can do that. 
Only God can do that. Well, let's look at this passage together. Turn with me in your Bibles or iPads or iPhone, whatever you use, and look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 20. What we will see here in this passage is an alarming situation. Secondly, an admission of weakness. And then thirdly, an answer to weakness. An alarming situation, an admission of weakness, and then an answer to weakness. Now, as we look at 2 Chronicles 20, I'm going to remind you uh, that this is the time of the divided kingdom. Probably already know that, but just helps us to set its context. You see this background this morning. There were 10 tribes, you will recall, that made up the northern part of Israel, and then two tribes that resided in the southern part of Israel known as Judah. Well, at this time in Judah's history, King Jehoshaphat was their king. Now, as far as kings go, King Jehoshaphat was a quality king. I mean, he had his issues. But the kings that made up the history of the Jews could be described in really one of three ways, the the good, the bad, or the ugly, okay? Now, King Jehoshaphat, for the most part, would have fit in the category of a good king. As a leader, he modeled a wholehearted devotion to God and Chapter 17, verse 6, it says of Jehoshaphat, his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Now, it's one thing to have that said of you when the going is good. But what about when faced with an alarming situation? Well, as we see in the opening verses of of, of chapter 20, the king finds himself over his head. We're going to look at what Jehoshaphat encountered and how he responded. Follow along with me. I want to pick it up at verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 20. Verse 1 of chapter 20 says, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon, Tamar, that is en Now, King Jehoshaphat gets word that there is a vast army coming his way with the intent of annihilating the Jews. And by the time the king gets word of this, it can be estimated that the army is about, say, 12 miles away. Now, notice what this news does to Jehoshaphat in verse 3. The NIV has one word there to open up verse 3. It's the word alarmed. Alarmed. Other translations say, and Jehoshaphat feared. His fears are rooted in real danger. The passage says over and over again, by way of emphasis through repetition, a vast army, a vast army is coming. Verse 2. This vast army that is attacking us, verse 12. It says it again in verse 15 and in verse 24. A vast army or vast multitudes. Now, Jehoshaphat was not immune to fear. A strong leader is not exempt from fear touching him. Because we learn and really can see in other places that Jehoshaphat was a man of courage 
At the end of chapter 19, he urges his leaders by saying, act with courage. See, you can have courage and experience fear at the same time. Courage is not the opposite of fear. Courage is the ability to act despite fear. I believe it was John Wayne who said courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway, right? Jehoshaphat was afraid. He was alarmed. This was a clear and present danger. Now, the real question this section raises is this. When faced with a battle, will we choose faith or will we choose the path of fear? Will we choose faith or will we choose fear? I mean, I ask you, as I'm asked myself, what do you do when you're alarmed? I mean, what is your first instinct? Is it to panic? Is it to get on the phone and call a friend? Is it to call someone you figure can do something about the situation and and then this kind of vent your frustration? I mean, what is your first instinct? Jehoshaphat is an example of one who chose prayer, not panic. There was this T-shirt that read, bottom of the ninth, down by three runs, bases loaded, two outs, full count, no fear. (laughs) No fear. The battle can be daunting if you succumb to fear. Think of the times your own fear has turned to panic. Again, the problem isn't the fear itself, but what do you do when you're afraid, when you feel insecure, when the battle seems bigger than life, when the odds are against you, what will you do? What will you trust in? Corey Temboom, survivor of the German concentration camps, would have people come up to her and say, Corey, what great faith you have. She would smile and reply, No, it's what a great God I have. That's Jehoshaphat's belief as well. He gets theological here, not emotional. Listen to what he prays. He stood up in the assembly, verse 5 says, and he prays. Well, listen to the sample of his prayer. I'm not going to read all of it. It was just read for you earlier. But verse 6, here's a sample of it. Here's his prayer. Listen to this, verse 6. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Verse 9. Calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine. We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Look at verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. He saw a vast army, but he was able to see an even bigger God. And C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian, a child named Lucy, encounters Aslan, the the Christ figure. She hadn't seen him for a long time, and she, she encounters him again, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan answers, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you're bigger, Lucy asks. 
I am not, Aslan says. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's it. The more we grow in the Lord, the bigger God is. As our vision of God becomes clearer, we grow to understand just how big he is, we learn to trust in him. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we shall see how competent he is. But listen, we cannot enjoy any of that until we do one thing. This one thing goes against everything in us. What's the one thing? What must we do? There was a sign seen in a textile mill. When your thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. Well, a young woman was new on the job and her thread became tangled. And she thought, I'll just straighten this out myself. She tried, but the situation only worsened. It was a mess. And so finally, she called the foreman. And she said, I did the best I could. No, you didn't, he said. To do the best, you should have called me. We know we should pray. We know we should depend on God more. Why don't we? Why don't I pray more? Perhaps there are many reasons for this, but I think the primary reason we don't is because we think we can handle things ourselves. We think, for the most part, we can do it with a little help from God now and then. So it becomes this formula, mostly depend on myself and a little bit on God. What's the problem? I don't really believe Jesus' words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So before we can see a big God work in this church in an even greater way, before we can see a big God work in our lives like never before, there is one thing that we must do. There is one thing that needs to take place in us. What must we do? It is what Jehoshaphat illustrates, an admission of weakness. It starts there. An admission of weakness. Jehoshaphat is amazingly honest as he stands before the people and he cries out, we do not know what to do. Imagine that. This is your leader. He goes before his people who no doubt are a little on edge right about now. This vast army is only a few miles away. They're about to strike, and the king stands before the crowd of people. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. You could cut the tension with a knife, and the leader says, there's a vast army coming up against us, and quite frankly, I don't know what to do. I am completely powerless. This isn't the kind of leadership that receives applause or gets you manager of the year recognition. We want to see what? Confidence. We want to hear from the leader. We know what we're doing. And to hear such words like this is viewed as what? Incompetence. What do we see next? Look at the king's strategy. All the men of Judah, verse 13, 
All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Now, folks, put yourself in their shoes. You, you see how, how ridiculous this looks to the casual observer? The vast army is 12 miles away. This vast army is about to attack them. This vast army is coming with the intention of wiping them out. And what are they doing? Standing there. That's it? That's the best you have? Looks like they're doing nothing. What kind of plan is this? This looks absolutely foolish. I wonder, when is the last time we look like fools for God? I'm not talking about looking like fools because of the silly, incidental, trivial things that get us all hot and bothered. I'm not talking about looking like fools because we're being obnoxious and we try and shove God's word down someone's throat. But are you willing to look foolish for Christ? Am I? Jehoshaphat wasn't concerned about his public image. He wasn't worried about his poll ratings. He wasn't going to be bothered about what others might think. He openly admitted his weakness, called upon the Lord, and was deep trouble if God didn't come through. And you know, this just might be one reason we come up short in admitting our weakness. We're too concerned about what others might think of us. We're worried about our public image. But when is the last time that our dependence on God was so strong that if he weren't in it, we'd fall flat on our face. That's convicting. Until we recognize our great need, we will continue to rely on ourselves. It is only when we cry out, God, it is beyond me, are we then ready for what God can do. And so much of our growth in prayer is born out of our struggles. Prayer in its most authentic form acknowledges that we are weak and in need of him all the time, not just for him to come through for us and then us to take it on our own and move forward. Because that's what we often do. A businessman was late for an important meeting and he couldn't find a parking space. As he frantically circled the block, the man got so desperate that he decided to pray. Looking up toward heaven, he said, Lord, take pity on me. If you find me a parking space, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. And not only that, I'll give up drinking. Miraculously, a parking space appeared. The guy looked up again and said, never mind, I found one. <laughs> yeah, we laugh, but that's true. It's true. So true of us, our prayer becomes this bargaining with God. And then once we get what we want, uh, never mind, God, I got it from here. Thanks, I'll call you again maybe a little bit later. The classic book, Prayer, the author writes, nothing so furthers our prayer life as the feeling of our own helplessness. It is only when we are helpless that we really open our hearts to God. I love the amazing honesty of this leader. Men, as leaders of your home, this is the starting place. I mean, you can strut around and you can, you can act like you're the boss and no one better mess with you. But the truth is, men, you really don't know what to do 
most of the time. Neither do I. Relationships are messy. Parenting is mind-boggling. Should you do this? Should you do that? Should you go over here? Should you go? Ah, ah. Be honest. You don't know what to do. Don't pretend you do. If we're going to know the power of God in our homes, if we're going to build a marriage and home that won't just go to pieces when a trial hits, that's going to need to be our constant prayer. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Will you admit your weakness? Ah, it's so hard for me to do this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, young and old, will we be willing to declare our complete dependence on Christ as the ultimate authority of our lives? We value a complete dependence on Christ as the ultimate authority of our lives. Here's the bottom line for us from this passage this morning. God puts us in situations which confront us with our own inadequacy so it forces us to find adequacy in God alone. Let me say that again. God puts us in situations which confront us with our own inadequacy so that it forces us to find our our adequacy in God alone. The answer to our weakness, God sends a prophet to Jehoshaphat with this word from the Lord, verse 15. Verse 15, he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. Well, that's easy for you to say. Why, though? For the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. Really? It's not mine? This is the answer to our weakness right here. As long as we think the battle is ours, we have no answer. As long as we figure we can handle this ourselves, we have no answer to the battles we encounter. I recall one pastor sharing his visit to a college football game as a teenager. And he noticed the the cheerleaders, as most 16-year-old boys do, but it was his, their cheer that got his attention. It was a very lopsided game, and the cheerleaders for the team that were, was down by many points were cheering. You can do it. You can do it. Yes, you can. <laughs> now, one can admire their enthusiasm and attempt at being encouragers when there's no way they're going to win the game at this point. But what, that, that's what they're supposed to say. I mean, when they can't cheer, we have lost. We have lost. Let's go home. But this is often our way of handling near defeat. Just pat the other person on the back and say, you can do it. You can do it. Yes, you can. No, you can't. No, you can't. When someone tells you you can do it, when you can't, it only compounds the problem. And many psychologists' offices and and school classrooms and self-help seminars and even pulpits, you discover that they're saying, you can do it. You can do it. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Neither can I. I mean, I'm all for working towards a healthy self-esteem and and encouraging others to keep on going, even when all seems lost. I mean, please hear what I'm saying. In our world today, the key to success is to become overcomers of just about everything. 
It's to let everyone know how capable we are, and that can happen in the church as well. But have you noticed throughout Scripture the type of people God chooses? (laughs) My clan is the weakest. Great, Gideon, you're my man for the job. I'm slow to speech, Moses said. Perfect, Moses, you're my guy. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child, said Jeremiah. I did not come to you in eloquence of speech, the apostle Paul said. Well, I really have a child now that I'm old, laughed Sarah. And we could mention the unknown widow from Moab, Ruth. And we see this over and over in Scripture. It's been said this way, how routinely we see God's man in God's place leading God's people is marked by hesitancy, by timidity, by uneasiness, and by due sense of personal inadequacies. And that goes against the prevailing notion of the day which seeks the strong, the competent, the rugged, the most likely to succeed, the quarterback types. The world equates success with being beautiful, outgoing, charismatic, articulate, put together well, whatever that means. And so little ordinary you and little ordinary me often struggle with adequacy. That's okay. God puts us in situations which confront us with our own inadequacy so that it forces us to find our adequacy in God alone. Will we admit our weakness? I mean, really admit it and address that you do not know what to do because the sooner we realize that and admit it, that our ordinariness is an advantage. And so we may depend on him entirely that our weakness becomes a strength. How did Paul express it? When I am weak, then I am strong. God puts us in situations which confront us with our own inadequacy so it forces us to find our adequacy in God alone. And if in those times we try and pull ourselves up with a good dose of self-confidence and rely on our own competencies, then we have only compounded the problem. Worse than that, we miss out on what it is that God wants to do in that situation. And what God does in this story for Jehoshaphat and his people is extraordinary. I don't have time to get into it. You can read it from verse 25 and following. It was an unusual battle and an incredible victory. And the passage says this, that there was so much plunder won in the battle that it took three days to collect it all. Wow. Only God can do that. Can it be said that we don't really experience fully the amazing provision of God until we fully throw ourselves in complete dependence on the power of God? Are you up against insurmountable odds? Feeling inadequate? Feeling ordinary? Feeling powerless and inept? There may be people, even well-meaning Christians, who might come up to you and say, you can do it, you can do it. Yes, you can, but you can't. The truth is only God can do it. Only God can turn defeat into victory. Only God can protect you from your greatest fear. Only God can soften hard hearts. Only God can open blind eyes. Only God can change attitudes within. Only God can build his church. Our present and future are determined by one thing, really, dependence on God. Only Christ will build his church. 
I've used this quote before, but it's so appropriate to what we have here this morning in this, in this passage of Scripture. A.C. Dixon put it this way. He said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon God, we get what God can do. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be. We value a complete dependence on Christ as the ultimate authority of our lives. It's God bringing you to that place of complete dependence. May 17th, 2008, Christian recording artist Stevis Curtis Chapman and his family suffered a, def- suffered a devastating loss. Five-year-old adopted daughter Maria was struck and killed when Chapman's 17-year-old son was backing his SUV out of the family's driveway. After much prayer and counsel, Chapman returned to touring and promotion for his newest album. He opened his first concert with the song, Blessed Be Your Name. Blessed Be Your Name was also the first song Chapman sang May 21st, the day of uh, right after Maria's death, when, when he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to sing again. Inspired by the story of Job at one point, as you know, the lyrics in that song repeat, he gives and takes away. He, re- he, he gives and he takes away. Chapman explained to the audience of nearly 5,000, As I sang this song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer, but I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. Chapman also shared that after Maria's death, he'd reconsidered the words to all his songs and whether he could still sing and believe them. Instead, losing his little girl brought the meaning of some of those songs into sharper focus, he says. One example was the song, Yours, which addresses how everything in the world belongs to God. And this song in particular, he says, I had come to a new realization. There's not an inch of creation that God doesn't look at and say, all of that is mine. As a result of that realization in conjunction with Maria's death, Chapman added a new verse to that song, yours. It goes like this. I've walked the valley of death's shadow so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear, and I've questioned everything that I believe. Still, even here in this great darkness, a comfort and a hope comes breaking through, as I can say in life or death, God, we belong to you. That's it. We belong to him. We were made to be in dependence on him. Will we dare to admit our weakness, be broken, be weak, and let's see what God can do? It's been said when God chooses to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and breaks him. And only then is there a supernatural quality evident in our lives. Let's live our lives, loved ones, in such complete dependence on him that all those who see will declare only God can do that. Only God. The truth is the things that really count for something in this life and the next, only God can do. Only him. Let's pray.